Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lester and you are listening live. Good morning, it is Saturday the 25th of February 2023. Today we are carrying on with our Cognitive Theories of Learning series. We're going to look at the work of the box screen to start with and then maybe a few other theories if we have time. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. A very happy Saturday to you all. As I've said, it is the 25th of February 2023 today, my last show of February. Um, I know February is, of course, the shortest month, with it only being 28 days, but this one does seem to have gone by particularly quickly. Um, I felt that January dragged on. Uh, January never seemed to end, but February does seem to have disappeared, um, which I like. Because, as I've said numerous times on the show, I'm not a fan of this first half of the year. Um, Between now and kind of the summer holidays, I'm quite happy for time to just disappear. Um, I then like to enjoy the summer holidays and we're then back into the um, autumn winter season, which is my favourite. Although I was reading this morning about the, um, the anticipated Beast from the East which uh, seems to be making an annual appearance. I don't know whether it's always come, and I've just um, been unaware of it until recently. Um, But I feel like, I don't know, I feel like the past few years, The Beast from the East has been um, a whole thing. And uh, it is making its appearance, apparently, at the end of uh, at the end of this week, so at some point over this weekend into next week and the following, Tim has texted in. Good morning, Tim. He said, "Good morning from London." Uh, it's not just you. January went on forever, and February has flown by. Thank you. I'm glad that you've said that because, of course, time is subjective. Um, I talk about this with my students quite a lot. One of the things that really struck me as a trainee teacher was in my third year. Uh, no. It was in my, wait, yes, it was in my third year. It was my penultimate placement. I was in an infant school and um, I was teaching year one and we were doing a concept in music that I knew they had covered in reception. And I was a little bit frustrated because they couldn't remember the work that they had done in reception. Um, Despite the fact that it had only been a year ago. And my mentor teacher pointed out to me that at five years old, one year was 20% of their entire lives. So I was, in fact, being quite unreasonable to expect them to remember something that they had done a year ago. And that was kind of mind-blowing to me. And, of course, it explains why everything seems to get faster as you get older, because a year becomes a much smaller percentage of your life. Um, But it is... It is interesting how we kind of have these perceptions. 
particularly in terms of the months, how January did seem to drag for, for lots of people, I think. Um, but I'm glad that it's not just me for whom February has flown by. Let's uh, let's see. <clears throat> excuse me. Let's see how we do in March. Um, of course, I did say that Tim had texted in. Anybody who is listening is welcome to text in. You can do so via the Podbean app if you are listening live. Uh, you can also tweet me at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word. You can do so at any point over the show. I do have Twitter open. I am keeping an eye. And of course, you can do so even if you are listening back in a few months time, if it is not currently February 2023 at all, if it is um, April 2023, if it is September 2024. Um, So long as I am still active on social media, you can tweet at me about anything I've ever talked about, because it will always be an interest. It will always be a conversation that I would like to have. And that's the interesting thing, I think, about social media and about podcasting as a platform um is that you know we have these conversations i plan these shows um i don't always plan my little monologue at the beginning i kind of like to keep this off the cuff and just talk about whatever happens to be on my mind but the actual show itself i do plan um and it will be archived in perpetuity you can go back and listen to any of my old shows or any of the teach talk radio shows at all Um, either via Podbean or Spotify or Apple Music or anywhere that you get your podcasts. And, you know, they will always be there for as long as these platforms exist. And so, you know, it it will be interesting, I think, in, let's say, five years' time, um, whether I'm still here or not, to listen back to some of the old shows and think about whether these debates that we're having, these discussions that we're having, are still going on, um whether we've made any progress at all over the next five years or whether things have changed and and these shows become a kind of repository of history of of what the what the profession was like at this very specific point in time who knows who knows but um yeah i'm quite excited for beast from the east i don't think it's going to come to anything not where i am it never does um but it is an interesting concept i think i like when the norm is shaken up a bit and i realize i'm tempting fate by saying that i apologize um but i do like when something different happens because for all people talk about how teaching is a great job because every day is different um every day is different but also every day is the same you have your same routine of x number of lessons break X number of lessons, lunch, X number of lessons, marking, home. And then when you get home, probably planning, more marking, and then you get up and you do the next day. And it is a little bit Groundhog Day-ish. Particularly when they keep reforming curricula, but nothing on the curriculum actually changes. So you go through all this training for the brand new curriculum, you learn how a new exam works, but actually the content that you're teaching is the same and you are still able to pull out your older lessons and and adapt them tweak them to your class but use the same basic thing and so i quite like when things threaten to um to disrupt the norm because not only does it kind of break up that kind of groundhog day-esque feeling of um there's a nice a nice french phrase uh metro boulot dodo which means to 
go to work, to be at work, then to go to sleep. And and to, so to have that disrupted, um, particularly by weather, is always quite interesting for me. I quite like it. But like I said, very, very unlikely. I think the reports that I read this morning, the headlines were all saying, oh yeah, Beast of the East is coming, the UK will shut down. But then as you read the article, it turned into there will be 20 to 40% chance of snow. Um, so we do like a bit of catastrophizing, I feel, in this country. But I have noticed um, it has been much, much colder over the past couple of days. We kind of got very spring-like towards the end of last week and the beginning of this week, I feel. But um, the temperatures have dropped. Um, it's currently four degrees where I am, uh, which isn't so bad for February, but it's not anywhere near what I feel it um, it ought to be based on last week. So it will be interesting to see whether um, whether this does happen. And of course, if it does happen, what happens to schools? Because I spoke uh, not too long ago about how a number of schools in my county before Christmas um, were closed because of the snow that happened. And, you know, that sparked a big debate, as it always does, about school closures and, you know, mislearning and all of that sort of thing, despite, as I said at the time, um, schools being perfectly able to move online, education not being disrupted because online teaching is just as valuable as in-person teaching. I will, I will, that is a hill that I'm willing to die on to be completely honest, um, you know, as somebody who has benefited a lot from distance learning, from online learning over the past, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years, um, I will say that, that schools are absolutely able to function online because we are first and foremost an educational facility and you can be educated on the internet. You can be educated. If we felt that you couldn't be educated at a distance, then shows like this would not exist. Documentaries would not exist. And essentially, an online classroom is just doing exactly that. It's doing what David Attenborough does through his, his nature documentaries. It's doing what I'm doing right now, or what I will be doing in about 10, 15 minutes, talking to you about Lev Vygotsky. The biggest difference, of course, is that online learning is synchronous. So this is asynchronous learning because you are not necessarily listening to me in real time. I know some of you are, and hello, um, but a lot of you will not be. And that's also okay. When we are watching documentaries, uh, you know, when you're listening to your favorite true crime podcast, when you are watching the, um, the Amanda Knox documentary that dropped on Netflix um, the other day, that is asynchronous because you are not doing it at the time that it is being recorded. So the, the big difference is that when we are educating online, we are doing so synchronously. Our children are there in front of us. They can ask us questions. The only difference is that they are not physically in the same room with us. So I feel like if we keep in mind that schools are first and foremost a place for education, then there is no reason why 
um, during premises closure. I don't like school closure because, as I've just outlined, schools do not need to be closed. During premises closure, there's no reason why learning cannot be moved online. Now, of course, the big, the, the real issue that we have is that we have allowed schools not just to be educational facilities. Schools are also warm centres. They are also places for children who may not be able to have food at home to be fed. They are babysitters. They are wraparound care. They are all sorts of things because we live in a capitalist society which deems that parents must work and does actually make it very difficult, I think, these days for families that don't have two working parents, two working adults in them. And it has also allowed other services to be defunded with the idea that school will take on that responsibility. So, you know, there doesn't need to be a separate entity that is responsible for making sure that children are fed because schools will take on that responsibility by providing a hot lunch. There doesn't need to be um, lots of funding pushed into social services, for example, to check in with children because schools can do that and can then liaise with the appropriate services if there is deemed to be a problem. So schools have become, for many, many reasons, a, a children's centres, I think, rather than schools. And it's the children's centre that people object to being closed, not the school itself, not the education. Um, and I do think it is important to make that distinction. Because for me, as somebody, I'm going to be very honest, as somebody whose priority is the education, somebody whose priority is the, the teaching and learning, then I think the conversation should not be about disrupted education. Because education does not need to be disrupted. I think it's perfectly legitimate for the conversation to be about disrupted food, disruptive warmth, disrupted socialization. Although I would posit, having spoken, I was a key stage three and four tutor during the lockdown. And I think my my boys, my tutor it was all boys, they um they spoke to each other more during lockdown than they did when they were in school because they were able to do so on their devices, on their consoles, on the stuff they just don't have access to when they're in school. Um, you know, it is okay to have those conversations, but I think we do need to, um, to split the two apart, to realise that schools are multifunctional and to realise that the closing of a school doesn't mean that all of the functions are unable to take place. It just means that a few of them are unable to, and perhaps there should be things put into place that are not the school's responsibility to pick up that slack. Perhaps there should be more accessible wraparound care for parents who finish at five. Perhaps there should be more warm centers where children can go if 
parents cannot afford to put the heating on. Perhaps there should be more places where children can eat either cheaply or for free if parents cannot afford to feed their children. You know, there are these systemic societal problems that we have that schools seem to be um, responsible for. But we don't ever discuss that when it comes to school closure. We always just discuss, oh, disruption of education, which makes it look like education cannot take place online, which is a fallacy these days. And I think we are doing education a disservice by not separating them out. And once again, I'm not saying that one is more important than the other, even though for me, the education is the priority. And I know that there are other teachers, good friends of mine, for whom the um, the the social aspects are the priority. And I think it's okay that different teachers feel differently about this. But I do think it is important to keep them separate so that we understand exactly what school closures do affect, or premises closures do affect, so that we can target that and we can resolve the actual problem that is occurring, not just make up some kind of straw man problem about education being disrupted uh, when it isn't, in order to make it look like schools are being irresponsible by closing their premises. Anyway, that's just my little rant um, on that topic. And it will all be for naught, because I am sure, as I've said, I am sure that uh, we are just blowing up 2023's Beast from the East all out of proportion. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. STV reports that a council in Scotland could become the first to open schools for four days per week. According to the report, West Dunbartonshire Council is currently considering the proposals alongside a range of other measures as part of a bid to plug a £15 million funding gap. Currently, primary schools in the county are open to pupils from 9am to 3pm each day, with secondary schools running an asymmetric week with seven periods on Mondays and Tuesdays and six periods daily Wednesday to Friday. The new proposals would see primaries open Monday to Thursday with hours of 8.30am to 3.45pm and secondary schools running an eight-period day, Monday to Thursday, beginning at 8.20am and ending at 4.10pm. The plans were shared with parents and are for the 2023-24 academic year. The other proposals being considered for education across the council are a reduction in the number of learning assistants, a review of grants for uniform, removal of breakfast clubs in primary schools and swimming lessons for pupils in primary four. Western Bartonshire Council says the plans would have no impact on teaching time or teacher numbers, but that savings would be made in costs for transport and energy usage. It does acknowledge that the proposals may impact upon childcare arrangements for parents, and that consideration must be given to support vulnerable children. 
plans for fifth day provision for those children is being explored. The plans are likely to find favour with unions as during June 2022's AGM for Education Institute Scotland, delegates backed a motion calling for a move to a four-day week, stating that it could improve the standard of teacher well-being. There is some concern, however, on the possible impact of the sort of move on those with non-teaching roles in schools. The Council will consider proposals during a meeting on March 1st, 2023, before any further steps to consultation can be taken. The Channel Island of Guernsey has released the finding of its latest young people survey. The results seem to indicate that vaping in schools is on the rise and that there has been an increase in bullying reports amongst children in year 8 and year 10. In better news, 40% of pupils surveyed believe their school now takes bullying seriously, a significant increase in the 26% figure from 2019. There has also been a significant uplift in the numbers of young people who cycle or walk to school, from 26% in the 2016 survey to 40% in 2022. Year 6 pupils walk or cycle the most. In terms of health, 40% of those surveyed admitted to trying vaping, although cigarette usage was down at only 15%. More Year 10 girls vape than Year 10 boys. The survey is completed every three years. Finally, Sir David Attenborough has praised Sunderland University's decision to join BAFTA's Albert Education Partnership to teach students the importance of creating sustainable content. Students on Sunderland's MA Media Production Programme will benefit from teaching on topics such as the science of climate change, the environmental impact of the film and TV industries, sustainable production practices and creating content with strategic environmental purpose. Sir David said that saving the planet is now a communications challenge. Whilst Gary Stubbs, leader of the MA programme at Sunderland, said the university's film and TV department is set to take green issues to task. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm asking a question that you don't dare to ask. There are some things in life that you're desperate to know, but just can't find the right person to ask. And when you try to search for it, incognito, of course, the answer still eludes you. Whether you're returning from, are on, or have already completed your half-term break, you can count on me to address the tech issues that face us in our classroom. Today, I ask, what is that bloody big hole in my desk for? You know, the round one that's too big for a cup holder, and if I poke any wires through it, the second I unplug and change rooms, they tie themselves into an array of knots that a master sailor would be proud of. If you're driving or operating heavy machinery, pull over, I found out what it's for, and found a use for it. It's called a desk grommet, and it is for wires. But it's for wires when you're not hot desking and you're staying at the same desk with the same equipment. Some clever companies have come up with some solutions that you may want to get your school to invest in. The most basic is a flexible rubber desk grommet. This simply shoves into the hole and has a star-shaped rubber grip. Pull wires through it, and they won't slip back through. I found a pack of three 
for £7. Bargain. Invest in a bit more, you can get a kit to make it a USB charging station. Now that would be rather more useful for bouncing from lesson to lesson. The cheapest I could find was around £20. Using the search term desk grommet cable management, I found for £27 a grommet with a standard UK plug socket, two USB charging ports and an RJ45. For the non-geek, an RJ45 is the Ethernet cable socket you plug your computer into to get the internet using a wire. This goes to show there's a text solution for everything. Do you have a tech question that you're afraid to ask? Why not send it to at TT Radio Official? I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. A tech solution for every problem, including one that I didn't even realise was a problem. <laughs> um, I kind of, I always look at those holes in desks and go, yeah, yeah, wires, yeah. Um, but of course, I'm now thinking my school has moved actually away from us having desktop computers in our own classrooms. We've all been kitted out with Microsoft Surfaces that we use, which does, as a nomadic teacher, um, I find makes my life a lot easier. I predominantly teach teach uh, teach speaking, and so my classroom actually is very very small it's big enough for four people uh, i don't have a teacher's desk in there i just sit at the table with the the children that i'm teaching in any given time so if i have a class um of more than four um well more than three i need to be in somebody else's room so you know when i teach my year eight so i teach my year nines uh my my a-level chinese whatever it might be i have to use somebody else's classroom and it was always a pain having to wait until the classroom was vacated go in log onto the computer pull up my powerpoints and everything um whereas with our new setup i can have my whole day just open on my surface and then as i go into each classroom i just connect immediately to the whiteboard and i can either do that wirelessly wirelessly or through a wired connection. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, so that does mean that actually the, um, what is Steve calling the grommets in the desks are becoming fairly obsolete in my school um, because we don't have anything there. We do have um, these little boxes that we can plug the surface into. Um, which will then connect it to an external monitor so we can end up with two monitors um, as well as the the whiteboard screen and a charging port um, i think although i'm going to check when i go into school on monday but i think that is what is currently fed through the the big hole of the wires for that um, i think maybe turning it into a usb charging port would be very helpful because it would mean not only could you charge your Actually, you couldn't charge a surface because that charges through a regular plug. But you could charge your phone. Um, the kids could charge their phones because that's always a bit of a pain when they come in and they say, oh, you know, my my iPad has got no battery. Um, my phone is on one bar. Have you got a charger? And so you then have to very quickly replan your lesson so that, that that child doesn't need their device. I think that would be quite useful. Um I think if you could make it a cup holder, that would also be very useful. See, all sorts of things, all sorts of things can be done, even when you didn't realize that there was a problem. Anyway, I'm not here to talk about grommets. That was uh, that was Steve's 
role this week. I am here to talk to you about Lev Vygotsky. If you missed the show last week, we are talking about different cognitive approaches to learning. And we spoke a lot last week about Jean Piaget. Uh, so I'm not going to go back through his work here. Uh, please do, if you missed last week's show, you can go and have a listen to that one. Um, it is available in the archives. Today we are going to look at some of the psychologists who built on Piaget's work and who continue to inform the um, cognitive practice that we that we follow today. So our first uh, kind of not disciple of of Piaget, but our first um, theorist that we're going to talk about is Lev Vygotsky, who lived from 1896 through to 1934. Now, Vygotsky was a Belarusian um, psychologist. He had originally studied law before he moved into psychology, uh, but he himself had quite an interesting um, schooling which calls to mind Piaget. So if you listened to last week's show, you will remember that Piaget was something of a child prodigy. He published papers when he was 10 years old. He was invited to curate museums, um, but turned down those offers so that he could finish his um, secondary schooling. Uh, you know, there, there was something of the 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 child savant about him. Um, Vygotsky, not quite in the same league, but he also had a very different approach to schooling uh, because he was homeschooled until 1911. Um, after that, he went on to a Jewish uh, gymnasium um, where he obtained his high school degree with a distinction and then he gained entrance into a university in 1913. Now what's quite interesting of course and as you know I'm a linguist not a maths teacher but he would have been 17 in 1913 so we are continuing to see um, and, and this happens right up until relatively recently in terms of educational history. We are seeing these people going into universities when they would, in a modern system, still be at school. Um, I joked in my EdD group chat the other day about how um, it was much, much easier for people to get doctorates um, two or three hundred years ago because they didn't have to cite any of um, any of the theorists because they were all the theorists in training and so they could just make stuff up but we we do see that people were going into universities at very young ages if you go back at the uh, if you look back into the history of universities you see graduates from them who were 12 13 14 years old and so this does beg many questions uh, for me not necessarily about the validity of the research of these people, because there is nothing to say that you can't be um, well-educated, intelligent enough to attend a university at 
13, 14, 15 years old. But it does make you wonder whether during their studies they had the maturity to come to the conclusions that they did. And we are now kind of taking as read all of these theories, all of these ideas, because they are the theorists, when in fact they were very, very young when they started their higher learning. And, you know, did they actually absorb all of the concepts as well as we might have hoped? Now, Vygotsky was probably a token student, unfortunately. Um, he went to Moscow University in 1913 and he got in through a ballot. There was a, a, a kind of like a lottery for Jewish um, candidates um, because the university had a 3% Jewish student quota uh, for both Moscow and I think St. Petersburg as well. So he kind of got in so that the universities could be seen to be welcoming of people of all ethnicities, of all races, of all religions. Um, he was interested in humanities and social sciences, but his parents insisted that he applied to the medical school. So he started in the medical school, but during his first semester, he transferred over to the law school. While he was taking his law lectures, he also attended lectures about the arts, about Judaism, about the history of the Jewish people, uh, and about what it meant to be Jewish, about Jewish cultural identity. So he very much, even while he was studying law, he very much kept his interest in the humanities alive. Um, in January 1924, so we kind of lose track of him a little bit, um, but in January 1924, he went to the very second all-Russian Psycho-Neurological Congress in what is now Leningrad, uh, and that was where he met Alexander Luria, um, and it was through Luria that he became a research fellow at the Psychological Institute in Moscow. So Vygotsky and his wife, um, Rosa Smakova, moved to Moscow, and he began a, he began his job at the Psychological Institute as a staff scientist second class. Um, he also taught secondary school, uh, and that was where he started to become interested in the process of learning, and particularly in the role of language in learning. Um, so this is kind of where Vygotsky piqued my interest. So as an undergrad, I did B.Ed. was my very first degree. And so we covered as part of my course all of these theorists. But kind of as somebody who was interested in language, uh, I liked the fact that Vygotsky was also interested. And, and I want to kind of know more about how he viewed the role of language in teaching. Anyway, during this time, um, Vygotsky was working on his dissertation, which he called The Psychology of Art, um, and that ended up being published in the 1960s. He also was working on a book called Pedagogical Psychology, 
and that seemed to have been the 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 core of a lecture that he prepared um, while he was a psychology instructor. In 1925, he made his only trip um, outside of Russia um, when he went to London and he attended a congress on the education of deaf people. He went back to the Soviet Union where he contracted tuberculosis um, and that impacted his ability to work. Uh, so he ended up kind of drifting in and out of work until the end of 1926. He was in 1925 awarded his degree um, in absentia um, assumedly, presumably because of his hospitalization. Between 1926 and 1930, he worked on a research program where he investigated the development of the higher psychological functions. Uh, so things such as voluntarily paying attention, uh, selective memory, decision-making. Uh, during this time, he gathered together a group of collaborators, including the aforementioned Alexander Luria, um, and he began to research phenomenon from three different perspectives. So he did attempt to get as broad a range of viewpoints on his ideas, on his theories as possible. So he looked at the instrumental approach. So he wanted to understand how people use objects as tools of mediation in memory and reasoning. He was interested in the developmental approach, which was focused on how children acquire their higher cognitive function, and a cultural historical approach, which of course probably stemmed from his studies of Judaism um, right back at the beginning of his university days. Um, and he wanted to look at how social and cultural patterns shape the forms of mediation and development. Um, he eventually died of a TB relapse on June the 11th, 1934. He was 37, uh, same age as me, um, in Moscow. Uh, he kept notebooks and diaries throughout his, his life and one of his last notebook entries, this comes from his Wikipedia page, uh, which I'm kind of trusting in terms of my research, my biographical research on him. Um, it says, this is the final thing I have done in psychology and I will like Moses die at the summit, having glimpsed the promised land, but without setting foot on it. Farewell dear creations, the rest is silence. So Vygotsky himself understood that he had done a lot of good work, but that, there, but that there was still work to be done. He didn't believe that his theories were finished. And that I think is something for us as educationalists and for people who are interested in child development to remember is that Vygotsky wanted his work to be built on. He wanted his work to be put into practice. He wanted it to be tested and he wanted changes to be made. So if we are just kind of blindly following what he had come up with by the time he died age 37, so way before he would have completed his work had he lived, 
we are kind of doing him a disservice, really. We're not doing what he wanted. We're not doing what he was after. So that's a brief kind of potted history of his life. Um, for me, as a um, as a burgeoning researcher, I think it's very important to understand the lives of the people that we uh, take as our models, because it is our own experiences, our own um, ideas about the world that shape how we perceive things. So everything that Vygotsky wrote about child development, everything Vygotsky wrote about memory and knowledge acquisition, it was all funneled through his own lens, through his own feeling of what's important, in the same way that these shows are funneled through my lens, my feelings of what's important. And so if we really want to understand the ideas, we need to understand the person behind them so that we can better know what they are grounded in, the history and the culture that the theories are grounded in. So Vygotsky's big idea, um, I think if we were going to, um, to distill his work down into one concept, was probably the social development constructivist theory. So this idea that social construction emphasizes the importance of culture and context in understanding what occurs in society and constructing knowledge based on this understanding. And that definition comes from um, Pagram and McMahon, who were writing in 1997. So it's this idea that knowledge isn't just transmitted and knowledge certainly isn't created but knowledge is actually funneled again through a lens of the person who is giving it the person who is receiving it and the other people in the room so knowledge isn't it's not the victorian idea of the teacher is filling the child with knowledge. The child is an empty vessel being filled. That was kind of how the Victorians viewed education. And we see that in their literature. We see the Victorian children's books are very didactic in how they are written, because the idea was that children were almost blank slates who could be told exactly what they needed to think, exactly what they needed to believe, and they would absorb that. They would take that on. Vygotsky was changing that and he was saying actually no, everything is funneled through our own understanding of the world and that understanding of the world is in turn shaped by the people around us, the experiences that we have, the society in which we live. He really drove home the fact that children don't develop in isolation. Uh, the children grow up in a social world. And this is something that we talk about a lot in in education. You know, it's something that crops up in the homeschooling debate all the time, um, is the idea that are homeschool children sufficiently socialised? Do homeschool children get enough contact with people outside of their immediate sphere? And so, you know, we kind of... It, we accept, we take for granted the idea that children grow up in a society, they grow up in a social world. Uh, Vygotsky's theory states that the child's environment, their age, 
their cultural and life experiences, their social relationships and their interaction with other adults and children all need to be considered when coming to conclusions about their development. Those are the socio-cultural influences of child development. And again, that's true. How many of us have either taught or encountered a child who has been socialized around adults, has been spoken to like an adult, and so has a very uh, sophisticated vocabulary, a very reasoned line of thinking, and kind of talks as a mini adult, rather than as we would assume most children would speak. That's the impact of that socialization, it's the impact of that environment, it's the impact of those interactions. We see it when people move. So it's it's very common when you move from one part of the country to another for your accent to change because you start to, not deliberately, but you start to mimic the sounds that you're hearing. And so if someone speaks in a way that is different to you, you pick that up, you pick up that cadence, you pick up those vowel sounds, you pick up everything that makes an accent. And so then when you return home, your accent has changed. Um, a vlogger that I watched was talking about this the other day, about how he's he's from Newcastle, and he used to speak with a very strong Newcastle accent until one day he did an interview with a TV star, an American TV star, who couldn't understand the questions that he was asking. And so he then started to, to deliberately tone his accent down so that he could be better understood um, through his his media career, um, and now he by default speaks with his kind of toned down, softer accent. But when he speaks to his parents on the phone, his kind of native birth accent, his stronger Newcastle accent, comes out. And so you know, it, it's these these socializations, the way that we interact with the people around us. They have all kinds of impacts on us that we don't necessarily realize. Uh, Vygotsky also said that learning is based on real life experiences. So children find it difficult to perceive abstract ideas. We talked about that when we talked about Piaget's theories last week. And that it's better for a child to be able to see or experience for themselves the phenomena that we're telling them about, instead of just us assuming that they will pick it up because we've told them it's true. Now, I told the story last week of the girl who was shocked to find out that pencils were solid. Had I, in case you missed that story, I suppose I should re-explain it because it is pertinent. I was teaching States of Matter Year 5, so the child was 9 or 10 years old. Uh, I had explained that, you know, solid, the, the, one of the main differences between solids and liquids is that solids retain their own shape when they are put into a container, whereas liquids take on the shape of a container. And a child then told me that that meant that pencils were a liquid, because when you put pencils into a pencil pot, they took on the shape of a pencil pot. Um, and I explained to her, I said, well, no, a uh, uh, first, I didn't even give an explanation. I just said, oh, no, a pencil is a solid. But she pushed me uh, and she was like, no, 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 it's a liquid. And she explained why. And she talked me through her reasoning. 
and and me alone telling her that pencils were solids was not enough to change her mind. It wasn't until I took a pencil and I dropped it into the sink in my classroom and the pencil remained a pencil shape instead of taking on the shape of the sink that she realized it was a solid. She needed to have that experience. So children struggle to understand things in the abstract. And, you know, I'm saying children, but I actually think that's true of all kinds of learners. You know, we hear people say all the time, I don't believe something unless I can see it for myself. And people say that as though they are critical thinkers. People say that to kind of attempt to... Um, to separate themselves from everybody else. But actually, I think that's quite a normal thing. I think that's a development, developmentally um, standard, normalized process, that you are more likely to believe something that you have for yourself experienced. Vygotsky said that language is essential to learning. It is the main means by which we communicate and transmit information to children. The language that we use is important. I think I've told the story on the show before about the time I taught the German word Geschwister. Um, it would have been about two years ago, because I think that class is now in year 10. They were in year eight at the time. And I taught the German word Geschwister, which means um, brothers and sisters. We were online. Um, it was during distance learning. And I taught that it meant siblings. Um, but of course, I'm from Gloucestershire, so I quite often will drop the G at the end of my words. And so when I explained what Geschwister meant, I said that it meant siblings. And we were online, so I couldn't write it down. I kind of just hoped that my class would understand how to spell siblings. Um, it wasn't until their exam, probably like four or five months later, when they had to define the word Geschwister, and one of the children wrote siblings, S-I-B-L-I-N-S. And that was when I realized that she actually hadn't understood the word um, until after when I'd explained that it meant brothers and sisters, but she'd clearly never seen the word before. She had clearly no idea how it was spelled. So she wrote down what she heard me say with the missed G. Now that's just a, a small kind of inconsequential example. Um, but it does go to show how important the language that we use around children, the language we use when transmitting our knowledge is. Because it's the words that we use in conjunction with what the children experience that create that knowledge. They understand a concept as we explain it to them. This is also why it's very important for parents to keep an eye on the types of media that children are consuming, because they will understand the world as it's being explained to them by the content creators they are listening to. So if they are watching content creators who think that it's okay to make misogynistic jokes, they will learn that that is the language that is okay and they will mimic that. So we do have to be very, very important with children when it comes to language. And I think, particularly in the English speaking world, we quite often have 
a mixed view of what is and is not okay. So it's always, particularly, I think, in the UK, it's seen as quite shocking when a child will swear. But if a child grows up around parents who use swearing as part of their normal vocabulary, that's part of their socialization, the child is going to grow up understanding that that's okay because it's how they interact in their normal social sphere. And particularly very young children don't understand the importance of kind of chameleoning, adapting your behavior, changing your behavior based on the different um, social groups that you might be with. And we tend to make a big deal out of children swearing, whereas we don't necessarily make a big deal out of the kind of jokes that they're listening to or the um, the biases of the influencers that they might be listening to, all of which is very important because that's all about how they are having information transmitted to them. Uh, Vygotsky also taught that children internalize languages, thought and inner speech. And so thought is the result of language. Now, Fox in 2001 disagrees with this because Fox wrote that if a child can't exist without language, then a child must be devoid of thought until that child learns how to speak. So there is a bit of contention there. And that's something that I don't think we will ever resolve um, because it can be very hard for anybody to verbalise whether or not they were able to think before they could speak because that happens at such a young age. But I think that idea of internalised language and inner speech is very interesting and I think it's very important because, again, we see it when children change their group of friends, their speech patterns will change ever so slightly because speech is a way that we fit in with people. Mimicking speech, code switching, um, mimicking cadence is all a way to create a, a sense of group cohesion. And that's very important to children. And so whichever group they are in, be that a peer group of just their friends or a family unit, wherever it may be, they will use speech to fit in. That's also true in the classroom, which is also why the speech that we use as teachers is very important. Because when they have an exam in front of them and they need to find the correct language to answer the question, they will mimic back the language that they've heard from us because they kind of trust that that is correct because we have expressed it in that way. So they believe that that's the way it should be expressed. There's been a big thing in the media over the past couple of weeks about the potential censorship of Roald Dahl's books because of some of the ideas, some of the expressions within them. You know, Roald Dahl does make a big deal out of the ugliness of people, about the weight of some of his characters, and he makes jokes about those. And there is quite legitimately a concern that children read that, they internalise that 
they they keep those thought processes. And that kind of fits in with what Vygotsky is saying, that children will internalize the language that they are exposed to. As of what I was reading yesterday, the decision has been made not to censor Roald Dahl's books, which I, th I think is the right thing to do, so long as um, conversations are had with children about why certain things are not okay. About, yes, they were seen as acceptable 40, 50, 60 years ago, but not now. And actually, I think those are interesting conversations for children to have. Children are interested in how things have changed. They're interested in what the world was like before they were born. They're interested in how they can make the world better. And I think the only way that the, the ideas presented in books, which are children's books after all, um, is if we don't challenge them, if we don't have those conversations. So I think it's important for teachers, for parents, if you find that children in your charge are reading Roald Dahl, then you just have conversations about them, you know, read the book with them. It's a nice way to have that, that bonding process. Um, talk about the language that Dahl has used, talk about what's good about his language, because there's a lot of beautiful writing that Roald Dahl comes out with. Talk about what is bad about his use of language in our modern society. And just have those conversations talk about how grown-ups can get things wrong too because i think that's a really good way to um to frame the content of those books um vygotsky is best known of course for his zone of proximal development his zpd again that was something that i'm sure all the teachers who are listening right now will have studied about uh will have studied during their initial teacher training so the idea is I need you to picture three circles, okay, um, kind of like Russian nesting dolls. So one in another in another. The biggest circle, I'm drawing circles in the air, I don't know why because you can't see me, but the biggest circle is the what I cannot do. Inside that circle, we've got a smaller one, that's the what can I do with help. And that's the zone of proximal development. What can I do when I've got somebody to help me? And then the smallest circle on the inside, that's the what I can do. And so what we need is for children to be in that center circle. What can I do with help? And we need all of the concepts that are within that center circle to move into the smallest one, the what I can do. And it's that, it's that movement, what I can't do, becomes what I can do if somebody helps me, becomes what I can do independently, that's the learning process. And it's that zone of proximal development, the what can I do with help, which is where we as the teachers intervene. Because we are what Vygotsky called the more knowledgeable other. It's why at primary, we can teach the whole spectrum of subjects because we are more knowledgeable across the board than the children that we are teaching. It's why at secondary school, we need that slightly more in-depth understanding of what we are teaching because in some cases, children will be more knowledgeable than we are about certain subjects. 
I know that some of my year 10s are much more knowledgeable about physics than I am. So it would be wrong for me to attempt to teach them any physics because I am not that more knowledgeable other. I might be able to help them. I might be able to construct their learning. So I might be able to help them to make that transition from what can I do with help uh, into what can I do independently, but I'm not necessarily more knowledgeable than they are. So they can't learn from me. But again, it's that zone of proximal development, the what I can do with help, which is where we step in. Because we give them the, um, we give them the knowledge so that it moves from what I can't do to what can I do with help. And then we give them all of the practice. We give them all of the help. We give them the scaffolding. And as we take that scaffolding away, that's when we test whether it's moved into what can I do independently. In 1978, Vygotsky published um, that the zone of proximal development is not a specific quality of the child, nor is it a specific quality of the educational setting or the educators. It is something that is collaboratively produced in the interaction between the child and the more knowledgeable other. The aim of the collaborate, uh, sorry, the aim of the collaborative interaction is to lift the learner to become a head taller. Now, what's quite interesting, if you come at this from a social constructivist point of view, which, as I explained last week, is how I was trained, the more knowledgeable other isn't just the teacher, but it can also be the other children in the room. And we've all seen that, I hope. Otherwise, I'm about to tell a story that just makes me look like an awful teacher. Um, but I've been in situations before where I've stood at the front of my classroom. I've explained my point. Most of my kids have understood it, but one or two haven't. So I've explained it again in a different way and they still don't get it. And it's not until one of the other students intervenes and explains it that the child who didn't get it before suddenly does. And that child who acted as the intermediary between me and the one who didn't understand, they were a more knowledgeable other. Granted, perhaps only slightly more knowledgeable because they hadn't had the chance yet to move into the what I can do independently stage. They had just grasped my explanation, but they were more knowledgeable. So they helped their peer to construct that knowledge. And again, this is one of the places where um, homeschooling is often critiqued because children do not necessarily have the wide social groupings to help for that construction of knowledge. But of course, with siblings and with homeschooling groups who are very, very fashionable at the moment, that is mitigated because the homeschooling child is able to meet with other children who can help to construct that knowledge. Uh, we've done a couple of shows on homeschooling um, in the time that I've worked in Teach Talk Radio, uh, so please do check them out if that's something that interests you. So it's, it's that, it's that idea on which we need to build from Vygotsky, it's that idea of the zone of proximal development 
of the more knowledgeable others and of the experience that we can move into um, that we need to build on. And again, for me as a teacher, it's that concept of the more knowledgeable other that is really interesting. Because obviously, as the teacher, I want that to be me. You know, purely from a fiscal point of view, if I need to justify my job, then I need to be the more knowledgeable other in that room. Otherwise, there's no reason for me to be there. There is no reason for me to be paid. But we use all kinds of more knowledgeable others in our teaching. A textbook is a more knowledgeable other. Other children in the class are more knowledgeable others. You know, it, there were a few years where it was seen as good practice um, for extension work to be, oh, you finished this worksheet, go and help somebody else. You know, with the idea that if you can teach it, that means that you can do it. And so, yeah, the other children in the class are more knowledgeable others. Your TA is a more knowledgeable other. Um, I, when I was a brand new teacher, my TA was my more knowledgeable other because my TA was much more experienced in the classroom than me. And so whenever I didn't know what to do, whenever I didn't know how to explain something, whenever I didn't know the, the best activity to do, I would ask my TA and she would help me to learn. The fiction that children read are more knowledgeable others because they are coming in with different worldviews, with different points, with different vocabulary. They are grown-ups who children believe, who children tend to trust. So everything that a child encounters is a more knowledgeable other. And if we come back to what I was saying at the, the top of the show in defense of um, uh, distance education, online education, the internet is a more knowledgeable other. What we need is better or what our children need is better um, digital literacy so that they know how to trust um, the trustworthy others on the internet and to ignore those who are not trustworthy and how to differentiate between the two. And this is all stuff again that we need to be building on. Vygotsky wasn't done. Vygotsky died before he had the chance to finish. He knew he wasn't done. He said himself that he wasn't done. So to kind of just take the zone of proximal development as read, as, as I've kind of done today, and go, yep, yeah, this is exactly what we should be doing. This is what we should be teaching. Let's go with it. That's doing Vygotsky a disservice. He wanted his work to be built on. And that is something that I think we have to do. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So... The last person that I want to talk about in this mini-series um, is Bruner, Jerome Bruner. Um, born in 1915, he was an American psychologist, and he focused on schooling in the 1950s. Now, of course, schooling in the 1950s is very, very different to schooling in 2023. 
And yet we still use his theories. We still are taught them as part of our initial teacher training. So again, that is something that we need to keep in mind when we look at these theories, when we take on what these psychologists say. Yes, they are the more knowledgeable others because I'm not a psychologist. So I'm trusting that these people understand psychology better than I do. But they were also operating in very different times. And it's important to take that social, um, the, the social historical factors into account when applying these theories to your own classroom. So Bruner essentially believed that the, the role of education, the purpose of education and the way in which children are educated need to reflect the values of the society in which they are being educated. Bruno was directly influenced by Vygotsky and by the social constructivist approach to learning. And he was particularly interested in how context and culture influence learning. And again, this is something that is very relevant today. As, as I've just said, the internet gives anybody a platform. Um, I'm very lucky that uh, that I was approached by our our big boss man Tom to do this after I gave a talk back in June um and so that's how I have this platform but anybody can start a YouTube channel you just need a Google account to start a channel on YouTube um anyone can start a podcast and can express any kinds of ideas and that's kind of both the the positive and the negative side to the internet is that anyone's culture, anyone's beliefs can be expressed and our children can find these and they can pick them up. And children need to be better educated on how to distinguish between what is a healthy viewpoint and what is a toxic viewpoint, as well as what is a toxic viewpoint and what is a viewpoint that is just different to mine. And they need to be able to discriminate between all of those different things. And those kind of critical thinking skills often develop much later than children start being um, aware of the internet later than they start being online. And again, this is possibly where even the fact that Roald Dahl censorship was a conversation did children a disservice. Because again, it was saying that we don't want to have the conversation about this attitude is toxic now, but it was okay back then. Or the idea is okay, but the way in which it's expressed is is not positive. Instead, the gut reaction was, let's just get rid of it. And again, we're doing our children a disservice by not training them in that critical thinking, by not training them to consider for themselves whether or not a viewpoint is expressed well. So Bruno proposed three modes of learning, three modes of making sense of the world, because ultimately that's what learning is. Learning is how we make sense of the world around us, how we understand better the world in which we function. And I think sometimes we forget that, both as teachers and as learners, that the whole point of learning 
is so that we can integrate better into the world so that we can be a more responsible part of society. Yes, learning for learning's sake is really interesting. I love to learn stuff. The reason that I went into teaching is because I love to learn things. And I'm hoping, and I still hope, you know, 16 years in the classroom, plus my three years of training, that my desire to learn can be infectious. That I can get the people that I speak to, not just children, but other adults, other teachers, um, my friends, I can get them to want to learn things. That curiosity for just because it's interesting. But ultimately, particularly in school, the reason that we are there is to learn how the world works. So again, Bruno proposed three ways of, of that happening. So there's the inactive mode, which is muscle memory. So for example, um, touch typing is quite good. I think most people these days can type on the keyboard without looking at the keys. That's muscle memory. Um, knowing your way home from work. How many times have you got home from work and realized that you didn't actually pay any attention to how you got there? I do that quite often when I walk home. I leave my classroom and then suddenly I'm at the door and I realize I have no idea what happened because I wasn't paying attention because my walk home at this point is muscle memory. When I teach Japanese and Chinese, and I have to start teaching children how to write the characters, I begin by making analogues to when they learnt how to write English letters, Roman letters. Because, um, you know, having taught reception, I know how that works. But none of the children can ever remember. They don't remember learning their letter formation. It has just become muscle memory in how they write their letters. Then there's iconic, the iconic mode, that's images and pictures. And Brunner said that information is generally stored as mental pictures, which is why diagrams and images are useful to learning. And then there's the symbolic. So that's information being stored as code, symbols or language. And um, Anglia, <clears throat> Anglia Ruskin University says that symbols offer flexibility because they can be manipulated, ordered and classified. They can also be used to describe and explain abstract information that cannot be explored through the inactive and iconic modes. So this, again, is building on Vygotsky's work. Vygotsky was saying that language is the most important thing. Bruna comes along and says, yes, it is important. That's symbolic. And perhaps it's the highest order because it's the one that involves interpretation. It involves thinking. But there are also inactive and iconic there are also muscle memory and pictures, and perhaps they come before language. And again, if you think about how you would interact with a child, we tend to have internalized that anyway. If you had to teach a baby how to rattle a rattle, how to shake a rattle, chances are you're not going to explain to the baby how to do it. First, you have to pick up the rattle. Then you have to move your arm vigorously from side to side. You're probably just going to show the baby how to do it. 
and then perhaps even put the rattle in his or her hand and shake the arm, that's inactive. Because you are assuming that the baby is not able to process that linguistic symbolic mode, that information, the language. This is also possibly why um, VAC theory took off, but has then been discredited, because visual auditory kinesthetic ties quite nicely into inactive iconic symbolic, but it kind of ignores the step-by-step the -step process of this, that you start with the inactive, you start with the action, you then move on to the iconic, you then move on to the symbolic. First of all, you show the child what's going on, then you give them a diagram or a picture to explain it. Then you explain in words what's happening. And we do that in language teaching. You know, here is a um, here is a paragraph in French in the present tense. Here is a diagram explaining how I've made all of these present tense verbs. Here is my explanation of how I've done it. From one to the other to the other. So Brunner came up with, or he built on Vygotsky's work to really cement this idea of a constructivist process. Learning is an active process. Learners construct new ideas and new concepts based on both current and previous learning. Learning builds on itself. Sometimes your learning enforces what you have learnt before. Sometimes your learning undoes something that you've learnt before, either because you learnt it incorrectly the first time, or because it was explained in a, an oversimplified way, and we need to correct that for you to understand what's coming next. So Bruner's work was in support of discovery learning and the idea of problem solving, because it's through solving problems that children can participate in their own construction of knowledge. Uh, Schmidt in 2011 said, for Brunner, meaning has always been at the heart of any investigation into mind and cognition. When we talk of meaning, we are talking about making sense of something, of understanding and comprehending it. So problem solving in this regard is presenting a child with something that they don't understand and giving them the opportunity to make sense of it. presenting them with a French story written in the past historic, a literary tense that you only ever use if you're writing novels, and having them investigate it until they can figure out a rule for the past historic, or even if they can figure out what the paragraph is saying, because it's not always easy to understand the past historic tense, to be honest. So for Bruno, the key concepts of learning boil down to language. Again, building on Vygotsky's work, language is important because it helps learners to develop their thinking skills, to problem solve, and to deal with abstract concepts. Language, and again, I'm a linguist, so I'm biased, but language helps to 
um, make the abstract concrete. Motivation. Learners need to be interested and motivated to learn. We know this to be true. Just anecdotally, we know this to be true. A child who likes your subject, not necessarily likes you, but likes your subject, is more likely to learn than a child who dislikes your subject. And that's okay. It is okay for children to dislike your subject. We're not all interested in everything, and that's okay. There are extents to which we as the teachers, we as the adults, need to try and find ways to motivate children, to offer that extrinsic motivation. But very few children just want to learn for the sake of learning. And that's okay. And it's about finding that balance, I think. There's social learning. So like Vygotsky, Bruner emphasised the social aspects of learning and felt that adults need to play an active role in the learning of children. And again, not just teachers, but all adults, anybody who comes into contact with children are, um, is responsible for helping that child to learn in the same way that we as adults are responsible for helping each other to learn. I submitted a, an assignment for my MA recently, um, which I was, I was having trouble making flow. I just couldn't get it to work. It didn't matter how hard I tried, I could not get it to flow. Um, so I sent it over to one of my friends, a very experienced proofreader, very clever man, who read it for me. And he pointed out to me where I was going wrong. He could see the things that I couldn't see. He was my more knowledgeable other. Now my MA, and he's the first to admit, is in a subject with which he is not particularly familiar, but he had that distance from it that I didn't have. And he could tell me exactly what was wrong with it so that I could rearrange it so that I could make it flow better. And what I handed in was a much better essay than what I had sent over to him for reading, purely because he had been able to say to me, oh, this paragraph doesn't make sense. This needs to go here. You need an idea to link this to this. Um, and, and that wasn't about him providing me with knowledge, because again, it's not a subject with which he is familiar, but it was just about him using his exterior viewpoint to go, yes, this isn't working and this is why. So that's part of that socialization. So as a society, we are all responsible for helping each other to learn all of the time. And finally, there's scaffolding. Complex tasks are broken down into smaller tasks for the child to achieve. Now, in certainly in England, scaffolding is just seen as part of education. It's just what you do. You break your task down. And, and I think it's taken for granted so often that we forget that it is actually part of constructivist theory. It's part of social constructivism. And so you will find people who say, oh, no, I don't subscribe to a theory of education. I just teach. They will still use scaffolding. And, and they will not kind of link that they are using a constructivist viewpoint. So the adult works alongside the child and offers support. We see this particularly in primary, um, you know, where in a class that has a teacher and a TA, 
the teacher will work with the group. Certainly in my classroom, I had it so that I would work with the group as a teacher. My TA would work with the group and then there would be a group working independently. And the, the three groups would kind of cycle through the week. And this is so important. And this is why in the funding crisis in schools, cutting the number of TAs is not an option. Because TAs are vital parts of that classroom. They are just as important for that learning as the teacher. The teacher and the TA work together to scaffold children's learning. And taking away the TA is only going to damage learning both in the short and the long term. But anyway, the adult works alongside the child to offer support. That support is then gradually reduced as the learning happens as the, the concepts are internalized, as the child moves through Vygotsky's zones of proximal development from this is what I can do with help to this is what I can do independently. Then when they're doing it independently, when they're doing it fluently, then you move on because then they've learned. Brunner argued for a spiral curriculum in direct opposition to Piaget's stages of learning. He said that schools waste a lot of time trying to match the complexity of material to children's stages of development. Now remember this was in the 50s. Um, and he said that children are held back by teachers because some topics are seen as too difficult for them to understand. So. Bruno basically argued that Piaget's um, stages of child development stopped children from learning because teachers were interpreting children as not being ready for concepts that maybe they were. And so instead, we need this spiral model where you visit an idea, then you move on to a new one, but at some point you come back to that first one and you keep repeating the same core ideas. In modern theories, we would say that actually that constant repetition, that constant revision, that constant coming back to is good because of the reinforcement that it gives. Bruner kind of argued that um, constantly revisiting means that regardless of what stage of development the child is in, at some point they will get it. And that the children who are one or two stages ahead of their peers will get it sooner. And so they're not being held back. I think either way, whichever model you subscribe to, the idea of this returning to core concepts is really important. And I think it's very important for every teacher to understand what the core concepts are in their subject and make those the centre of the curriculum. Regardless of what exam boards say we need to do, regardless of what um, government-based curricula say we need to do, we all need to think about what the core skills, the core tenets of our subjects are, and have those embedded in our curriculum throughout, from reception up through to year 13, from reception up through to doctoral level. And we need to keep coming back to them so that our learners can truly understand. So that's kind of it, really, in terms of our cognitivist um, shallow dive. Obviously, I could do months and months of just talking about each of the theorists in turn. And we've just done a kind of two hour um, 
to our leap into them. But ultimately, a cognitivist approach is a learner-centered approach to teaching and learning. It is active, it's discovery-based, it's inquiry-based, it's reciprocal. The teacher acts as a facilitator for learning rather than a knowledge transmitter. So the teacher says, this is what we're discovering, this is what it means, here are the means by which you are going to find this out for yourself. And education is shaped by society. And again, that's a big one that we really need to think about. What value does society place on education? What value does society place on specific subjects? And how does that impact what a child learns? It's been interesting for me to see since the government push on STEM, more and more children have been taking uh, maths and sciences at A level, which is brilliant. I think, you know, people should be studying maths and sciences at A level, absolutely. But I've noticed that numbers in languages, arts, humanities have all dropped because society is currently saying STEM subjects are important. And we need to make sure that there is that balance. We need to make sure as society, children are hearing that all subjects are important so that they are able, they feel empowered to take the subjects, do the learning that they are passionate about, that they are interested in, so that they can lead the lives that they want to lead. Because ultimately, that's what learning is about. It's about shaping the world that you want to shape, creating the the, the society that you want to create, seeing this world through the lens that you want to see it through. And all we do as teachers, all we do as adults who interact with children is uh, is facilitate that, ultimately. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that that has been um, interesting or useful over the past couple of weeks. I am the only show once again today, so please do, if you've got any free time, go back through our archives find out some of the other interesting things that uh, that Teach Talk Radio has spoken about. I hope that you all have a great week, whether this is your first or second week back after half term. I hope that you enjoy it. And I will see you for breakfast next Saturday morning. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.